Section 7 of Heroines Every Child Should Know. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Natalie Paula. Heroines Every Child Should Know. Edited by Hamilton Wright Maybe and Kate Stevens. Joan of Arc, Part 3. On the morning of September 8th, the festival of the Virgin's Nativity, they advanced to attack the city. They were divided into two corps. One, led by Joan, Gokar, and Retz, went at once to the assault. The attack began about noon. The bastion of the St. Honoré gate, having been set on fire, its defenders were forced to abandon it, and the assailants, headed by Joan, passed the outer fosse. She climbed the ridge separating it from the inner fosse, which was full of water, and from that place summoned the city to surrender. She was answered with jeers and insults, and a shower of missiles, amid which she carefully sounded the fosse with her lance, and found that it was of unusual depth. At her bidding the men brought faggots and hurdles to fill it up and make a resting place for their ladders, but while she was directing them an arrow wounded her in the thigh so severely that she was forced to lie down at the edge of the fosse. She suffered, as she afterwards confessed, agonies of pain, but she never ceased to encourage her men, bidding them advance boldly, for the place would be taken. The place would have been taken, but the captains were with Joan, seeing that the hours went by and the men were struck down without achieving much, ordered a retreat. The trumpet sounded, the men withdrew. Joan, desperate in her sorrow, clung to the ground, declaring she would not go until the place was won. At about ten o'clock, Gaucourt and his had her removed by force and set upon her horse she was carried back to la chapelle suffering in body suffering more in mind but still resolute the city would have been taken she insisted it would have been taken joan spent four weary months how weary we conjecture chiefly from what we know of her character and her aspirations occasionally she rode with a few followers to visit some town where she was known but generally she was with the court a sad and unwilling spectator of its festivities sad only because of her unfulfilled mission had she been suffered to work it out to see france delivered she would doubtless have taken pleasure in show and gaiety she was at home and happy with knights and ladies and took a frank delight in rich garments and fine armour she was no bigot her sanctity was altogether wholesome it was an exalted love for god for france and the king unsoured by any contempt for the common life of humanity wherever she went she visited the sick she gave all she could in alms she was devoted to the services of the church and to prayer. The people who knew of her greatness and saw her goodness treated her with such reverence that was akin to superstition. They brought rings and crosses for her to touch and so turn into ambulance. Touch them yourself, she would say, laughing. They would be just as good. Some believed that she had had a charmed life and need never fear going into battle. Joan grew desperate. Sad voices from beyond the Loire were calling her. She was greatly wanted there, and the king, her king, whom she had crowned, did not want her, cared nothing for her, nor for his people's trouble. She asked counsel of her other voices, of her saints, and they neither bade her to go nor stay. They told her only one certain thing, that before St. John's Day she would be taken. If so, if, if indeed, as she herself had said, she was to last only a year, and then the more need to hasten with her work. One day at the end of March she left Sully with a small company, as if going for one of her usual rides. She did not bid farewell to the king, and she never saw him again. It was a time of sad forebodings for her. A story goes that one evening, after hearing Mass in the church of St. Jacques, she went apart and leaned dejectedly against a pillar. 
Some grown people and a crowd of children came about her. She was always gentle to children, and she said to them, My children and dear friends, I tell you that I am sold and betrayed, and that I shall soon be given up to death. Therefore I entreat you to pray for me, for never again shall I have any power to serve the king or the kingdom of France. She was not sold and betrayed yet. That was to come. Depression could not make her inactive. She went to Crespi for reinforcements, but hearing that the siege of Compiègne had begun, she hurried back there on the night of April 23rd with about 400 men. She entered the place at sunrise and spent the chief part of the day in arranging a sortie to be made before evening. Compiègne, situated on the south bank of the Oise, was connected with the opposite shore by a bridge from which a raised causeway went over the low river meadows to the hill slopes of Picardy. Late in the afternoon, Joan, with five hundred foot and horsemen, made a short charge. Then Joan's troops feared to be cut off from Compiègne, to be left in a country dotted with the enemy's camps, and most of them turned, panic-stricken, and fled towards the city. The English gained the causeway, and the archers stationed there dared not shoot on them for fear of hurting their own people. The guns of Compiègne were useless, for friends and foes were mingled in a confused struggle. Joan tried to rally her men. "'Hold your peace!' she cried to someone who spoke of retreating. "'It depends on you to discomfit them. Think only of falling upon them.' But her words were in vain. All she could do was to cover the retreat, and that she did valiantly, riding last and charging back often. Thanks to her, a great part of the fugitives got safely into the city, while others reached the boats, but the English pressed towards the gate to cut off the retreat of the remainder, and Guillaume de Flavé, afraid, as he said, lest in the confusion they might rush into the town itself, ordered the drawbridge to be raised, and the portcullis lowered. There was no escape for the maid now, and she and a little devoted band that kept with her fought desperately, but they were driven into an angle of the fortifications. Many fell in defending her. Compiègne remained shut. The city, to whose help she had come at dawn, saw her lost at its very gates before sundown, and made no effort to save her. Five or six men rushed on her all at once, each crying, "'Yield to me! Pledge your faith to me!' "'I have sworn and pledged my faith to another than you,' she said, "'and I will keep my oath.' She still struck at those who tried to seize her, but an archer came behind her, and grasping the gold-embroidered surcoat that she wore, dragged her from her horse. She fell, exhausted and overcome at last, and the man who had pulled her down carried her to his master. She was taken to Marnier, and thither flocked the English and Burgundian captains, more joyful than if they had taken five hundred fighting men. In this very month of her capture, it had been found needful to issue proclamations against the English soldiers, men of the old conquering race, who had refused to come over to France for fear of the witch. And now here was the witch, vanquished, powerless, her armor soiled in the fight, her magic banner had fallen away from her. The chiefs could hardly believe their good fortune, but her sad presence was there to assure them of it, and they came and gazed on her. The weeks went by, and no one stirred to help her. Her captor's scruples were overcome, and before winter she was bought and sold. John of Luxembourg got ten thousand livres, two thousand dollars. Hitherto we have seen Joan, a gracious figure, always better, always nobler than her surroundings, but never yet solitary in goodness and nobleness. Other figures have been grouped about her, gracious also in their degree, worthy to divide with her our sympathy, and to have some share in our love. Now that they are all gone from her, father and mother, village friends and kinsfolk, devoted comrades and adoring people, are all shut away from her forever. The old life is over.
she is desolate and worse than alone to the darling of the saints loneliness would be no such terrible punishment wrong and horror crowd upon her her honour and her life are in the hands of men evil by nature or turned to evil by hatred or greed or fear here and there a judge speaks some word in favour of banished justice but those feeble flashes leave no light in the gloom the light shines all on joan the pure maiden the noble heroine stands out heaven illumined against the darkness her sorrow and her endurance of it crown and sanctify her piteous though her fate be we almost forget to pity her for compassion is well nigh lost in reverence and wonder on her arrival at rouen joan was taken to the castle and put in an iron cage that had been made to receive her and as if its bars were not enough she was chained in it by her neck her hands and her feet after being kept thus for several days she was transferred to a gloomy chamber in one of the towers where she was fettered to a great log of wood during the day and to her bed at night both by night and day she was guarded by five english soldiers of the lowest and rudest class three of whom were always with her while the other two kept the door outside once given over to the church she should have been placed in an ecclesiastical prison and guarded by women for this right she pleaded often and her plea was supported by several of her judges but the english would not lose their grip of a captive who had cost them and lost them so much and pierre cochon bishop of beauvais had too great fear of displeasing them to advise such a simple measure of decency and justice joan had visitors in her prison english nobles whose nobility did not keep them from insulting a woman and a helpless captive came to stare and jest at her warwick and stafford came one day and with them a man who might well have shrunk from looking her in the face the judas of luxembourg he told her he had come to ransom her on condition that she would not again take up arms against england she answered him scornfully as he deserved in god's name you but mock me for i know you have neither the will nor the power to do it and she added i know that the english will kill me thinking to have the kingdom of france after my death but were they a hundred thousand goddams more than they are they should not have the kingdom cauchon refused the maid's request for counsel to advise and defend her during her examination but he was not merciful enough to leave her to the guidance of her own wise brain and true heart according to the bad custom of the inquisition he sent her a sham confidant a creature even more abject than himself his friend and tool the canon loiselieux this man went to joan in disguise and told her that he too was a prisoner a loyal subject of king charles and a native of her own province the guards left them together and she poor child being glad to see a friendly face talked to him with a trustfulness that might have touched even such a heart as his the bishop listened in an adjoining room and stationed two scribes there to report joan's words but the men were too honest for such work and refused to do it to gain her fuller confidence loiselieux made known to her that he was a priest and heard her in confession he also gave her counsel how to answer her judges bad and crooked counsel of which she availed herself little but still enough for us to trace here and there in the influence of an evil mind over hers on tuesday february twentieth she was summoned to appear next day before her judges having heard and seen what they were she demanded that an equal number of assessors of the french party should be associated with them she also entreated the bishop of beauvais to let her hear religious service the prayer was denied joan appeared before them a youthful girlish creature in her masculine dress the dress was all black relieved only by a pale prison-worn face from which the dark eyes looked out fearlessly 
the bishop began by briefly stating the crime she was accused of and explaining to her how he came to be her judge then he exhorted her with gentleness and charity to answer truly all questions put to her from the first moment of the trial she was on her guard she felt her judge's falsehood and malevolence in the very air around her the gospels were brought and she was ordered to swear upon them that she would speak the truth she hesitated i do not know what questions you may put to me she said perhaps you will ask me things i cannot tell you will you swear insisted cochon to speak the truth about whatever you are asked concerning the faith and whatever you know she answered that she would willingly speak of her parents and all of her own actions since she had left Domremy. jean paupere took up the examination his first question was when she had last eaten and drunk it was the season of lent and if she had taken food as usual she might be accused of contempt of the church if she fasted but gave colour to a theory of beaupere's that her visions were induced chiefly by physical causes she told him she had fasted since noon the day before he inquired at what hour she had last heard the voice i heard it yesterday and to-day she said i was asleep and it woke me i do not know whether it was in my room but it was in the castle i thanked it sitting up in my bed and with clasped hands and implored its counsel i had asked god to teach me by its counsel how to answer and what did the voice say it told me to answer boldly and god would help me here she turned to the bishop you say you are my judge take heed what you do for indeed i am sent by god and you are putting yourself in great peril beaupere asked her if the voice never varied in its counsel no she said it has never contradicted itself last night again it bade me answer boldly her dress her banner and pennon were inquired about had not the knights her companions their pennons made after the pattern of hers had she not told them that such pennons would be lucky to this she answered i said to my men go in boldly among the english and i went myself did you not tell them to carry their pennons boldly and they would have luck i indeed told them what came to pass and it will come to pass again had she not ordered pictures or images of herself to be made nor had she ever seen any image in her likeness she had seen a picture of herself at arras she was represented kneeling on one knee and presenting letters to the king did she know that those of her party had caused masses and prayers to be said in her honour i know nothing of it she answered if they did so it was not by my command nevertheless if they prayed for me i think they did no wrong do those of your party believe firmly that you were sent by god i do not know i leave that to their consciences if they do not believe it i am none the less sent by him do you think them right in believing it if they believe that i am sent by god they are not deceived did you understand the feelings of those who kissed your feet your hands and your garments many were glad to see me i let them kiss my hands as little as possible but the poor people came to me gladly because i did them no unkindness but helped them as much as i could did not the women touch their rings with the ring you wore many women touched my hands and my rings but i do not know why they did so for more than three months her trial went on but her fate was settled now the inquisition had no pardon for her the judges left her a few daring to be sorry for the brave creature but most of them openly and indecently glad in the courtyard they found a number of english waiting for news among them the earl of warwick farewell farewell cried the bishop as he passed him be of good cheer it is done 
her guilt was proved let her be given over to the secular power but first let her be charitable exhorted for her soul's welfare and warned that she had nothing more to hope for in this world the bishop ordered a citation to be drawn up summoning joan to appear next morning in the old market-place of rouen to receive her final sentence she did not hear her doom that night but the grave faces and words of the monks showed her the dreadful reality and for a little while youth and womanhood and human weakness had their own way with her she wept piteously alas she cried will they treat me so horribly and cruelly must my body be consumed to-day and turned to ashes ah i would sooner seven times be beheaded than be burnt oh i appeal to god the great judge against the wrong and injustice done to me while she was thus lamenting cochon come in with pierre maurice and two or three others seeing him she cried bishop i die by you maurice looked kindly at her as he went and she said to him master pierre where shall i be to-night have you not a good hope in god he asked ah yes and by god's grace i shall be in paradise she received the sacrament with tears and with deep penitence and devotion thenceforth her faith was unshaken and she failed no more next morning at nine o'clock she left the prison clothed now in a woman's long gown and wearing a mitre inscribed with the words heretic relapsed apostate idolatrous a cart was waiting for her and she got into it accompanied by brother martin and usher Massieu. the guard of about eight hundred soldiers surrounded her to keep off the crowd but suddenly there rushed through the ranks a haggard and miserable figure it was nicholas Lesolieu, who seized by late and vain remorse had come to ask forgiveness of her whom he had betrayed but before he could reach her the soldiers drove him back and joan probably neither saw nor heard him for she was weeping and praying her head bowed upon her hands when she looked up she saw beyond the soldiers a dense throng of people most of them grieving for her many of them lamenting that this thing should be done in their city oh rouen rouen she cried is it here that i must die at last she reached the old market-place a very large space where had been raised three scaffolds one for the bishop of beauvais and his colleagues one for all the prelates and nobles who desired to see the show and another for joan and some priests and officials the third also for joan a pile of stone and plaster raised high above the heads of the crowd and heaped with faggots in front of it was a tablet bearing this inscription joan who has called herself the maid liar pernicious deceiver of the people sorceress superstitious blasphemer of god presumptuous disbeliever of the faith of christ boaster idolatrous dissolute invoker of devils apostate schismatic heretic master nicholas midi a famous doctor from paris preached joan's last sermon on the text if one member suffer all members suffer with it at its close he addressed her joan go in peace the church can no longer defend you it gives you up to the secular power then the bishop spoke to her he did not read the form of abjuration as it had been advised for she would have boldly disavowed it and so would have spoilt a scheme he had concocted but he admonished her to think of her salvation to remember her misdeeds and repent of them finally after the usual inquisitorial form he declared her cut off from the church and delivered her over to secular justice she needed no exhortation to prayer and penitence for while she seemed to forget the gazing crowd and the cruel judges she knelt and prayed fervently prayed aloud with such passionate pathos all who heard her were moved to tears even cochon wept even the cardinal was touched 
she forgave her enemies she remembered the king who had forgotten her she asked pardon of all imploring all to pray for her and especially entreating the priests to say a mass for her soul presently she asked for a cross an english soldier broke a stick in two and made a rough cross which he gave her she kissed it and put it in her bosom weeping calling upon god and the saints but the men-at-arms were growing impatient come you priest shouted one of them are you going to make us dine here the bailiff of rouen as representing the secular power should have now pronounced sentence of death but as he seemed afraid of delaying the soldiers two of whom came up and seized joan take her take her he said hurriedly as he bade the executioner do his duty the bishop's trial had after all an illegal and informal setting the soldiers dragged joan to the pile and as she climbed it some of her judges left their platform and rushed away fearing to behold what they had helped to bring about she was fastened to the stake high up that the flames might gain slowly upon her and that the executioner might not be able to reach her and mercifully shorten her agony ah rouen she cried again as she looked over the city bright in the may sunshine ah rouen rouen i fear thou wilt have to suffer for my death the executioner set fire to the pile the confessor was by joan's side praying with her and comforting her so earnestly that he took no notice of the ascending flames it was she who saw them and bade him leave her but hold up the cross she said that i may see it now cachan went to the foot of the pile hoping perhaps that his victim might say some word of recantation perceiving him there she cried aloud bishop i die by you and now the flames reached her and she shrank from them in terror calling for water holy water but as they rose and rose and wrapped her around she seemed to draw the strength from their awful contact she still spoke brother martin standing in the heat and glare of the fire holding the cross aloft for her comfort heard her dying words jesus jesus mary my voices my voices did she hear them those voices that she had said fret not thyself because of thy martyrdom thou shalt come at last to the kingdom of paradise yes she said my voices were from god my voices have not deceived me then uttering one great cry jesus she dropped her head upon her breast and died the common folk soon addressed their tale of signs and wonders to the simple and terrible truth an english soldier who greatly hated the maid had sworn to bring a faggot to her burning and he threw it on the pile just as she gave the last cry suddenly he fell senseless to the earth and when he recovered he told how at that moment he had looked up and seen a white dove flying heavenward out of the fire others declared that they had seen the word jesus her dying word written in the flames the executioner rushed to a confessor crying that he feared to be damned for he had burned a holy woman but her heart would not burn he told the priest the rest of her body he had found consumed to ashes but her heart was left whole and unharmed many not of the populace were moved by her death to recognize what she had been in life i would that my soul were where i believe the soul of that woman is exclaimed john alspay one of the judges we are all lost we have burned a saint cried tressar a secretary of the king of england winchester determined that though she might be called a saint there should be no relics of her had her ashes carefully collected and thrown into the seine the tidings of her death went speedily through france they found charles in his southern retirement and nowise disturbed the ease of mind and body that was more to him than honour they reached domremy and broke the heart of joan's stern loving father isabel romay lived to see her child's memory righted and her prophecies fulfilled 
in june fourteen fifty five pope calixtus named a commission to inquire into the trial of joan of arc joan's aged mother came before them supported by her sons and followed by a great procession of nobles scholars and honourable ladies she presented the petition she had made to the pope and the letter whereby he granted it and the commissioners who took to her side heard her testimony and promised to do her justice and now the dead heroine was confronted with her dead judges to their shame and their enduring honour messengers were sent into her country to hear the story of her innocent childhood and pure unselfish youth through her whole life went the inquiry gathering testimony from people of all ranks the peasants whom she had loved and tended in her early girlhood the men who had fought by her side and the women who had known and honoured her the officers of the trial and many who had watched her suffering and beheld her death all were called to speak for her now they testified to her goodness her purity her single-hearted love for france her piety her boldness in war and her good sense in counsel all were for her not one voice was raised against her rouen the place of her martyrdom became the place of her triumph the judges pronounced the whole trial to be polluted by wrong and calumny and therefore null and void finally they proclaimed that neither joan nor any of her kindred had incurred any blot of infamy and freed them from every shadow of disgrace by order of the tribunal this new verdict was read publicly in all cities of france and first at rouen in the old market-place where she had been cruelly burnt this was done with great solemnity processions were made sermons were preached and on the site of her martyrdom a stone cross was soon raised to her memory the world was no relic of joan her armour her banner and picture of herself that she saw at arras have all disappeared we possess but the record of a fair face framed in plentiful dark hair of a strong and graceful shape of a sweet woman's voice and it seems and yet indeed hardly is a wonder that no worthy poem has been made in her honour she is one of the few for whom poet and romancer can do little for there is nothing in her life that needs either to be hidden or adorned we see her best in the clear and searching light of history end of section seven